Welcome to Becoming Your Best Version, a podcast in which I interview inspiring women whose paths have crossed mine. And this is an interesting story. Uh, my guest today, Renee Plank, ha- and I have a strange connection in that I went to grade school with her brother-in-law. A mutual friend introduced us online thinking we'd have a lot in common, which we do. We were just chatting, 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 and probably could have gone on for hours. But I wanted to get this podcast online because this woman, Renee Plank, is a writer, speaker, teacher, and mother whose work has been featured in The Rumpus, The Atlantic, The Iowa Review, the Washington Post, Seattle Times, New York Times, and elsewhere. Her stories and essays have been nominated for both the Pushcart Prize and the Best of the Net. And she is the author of this amazing book called When She Comes Back, a memoir about the loss of her mother to a guru whose name I can't pronounce, but she will, and their eventual reconciliation. Her short story collection called Home is a Made-Up Place won Hidden River Arts 2020 Eludia Award and will be published in 2022 by Sawilo Press. She's also creator and host of the award-winning podcast called And Then Everything Changed, featuring interviews with authors, survivors, and people in recovery about a pivotal moment in their lives and the decisions that have defined them. It's super fascinating. I'm already hooked. She lives in Seattle with her family. Check out Renit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K.com for more information and links to her book, her articles, and podcast. Welcome, Renit. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. I'm so happy to be here. So you have such an interesting uh, way of connecting with people, and that is examining the moment where everything changed. The pivotal moments in one's life, whether it's one seminal moment or many, and that's where I I suspect that's where most of us grow the most. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us what made you decide to examine that starting with your podcast or did the book come first? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd say that um, I've been writing longer than podcasting, and I had studied fiction first. Well, first I was acting, then I was writing, and first I was writing fiction before nonfiction or memoir. And I learned this sort of uh, format for fiction, especially short stories and also novels about this big crucial moment of change. And then there's this point of no return where the character has to decide what to do. And then everything after that, and you'd see this in movies too, good movies with a good framework, books, they all have this sort of formula. And then it's like this point of all is lost and then the characters have to decide what to do. So I think that that informed my idea of structure because I thought our lives are not neat. They're not tidy. But when we look back on moments and periods of our life, we can kind of see how things evolved. And so it came out, the podcast came out of my need to sort of organize experiences and lives and sort of put sort of an authorial spin on people's journeys. And I myself have been through several of these times in my life, of course. And I would say one of the bigger moments for me was deciding to really stay still a bit and look at my own behavior and my own past and how I could 
be better in my own life despite what I had experienced growing up. And so, you know, I was at a crucial point in my life several times, but one of the biggest was as an adult and a mom when I was having a hard time being vulnerable and being really there for my partner. And um, I thought because of the way I was raised, my mom leaving to follow a guru, my family falling apart, being left so much and feeling unworthy, that I was sort of the good guy in most of my relationships. This is subconscious, you know. Right. I didn't realize that, of course, I can cause a lot of damage too. And I can put up barriers that prevent me from being intimate with someone. And so I had to sort of decide to stay present and to stay still so that I could receive and also give back in an authentic way. And I kind of learned how to do that. I'm still married. <laughs> um, um, you know, I, I, I try to show up as much as I can in, in an honest way. And so that was sort of the time when I realized, you know, it's possible to change. It's possible to create your life the way you want to. And it's been really good for me. And so I think that's where I, I decided to start interviewing people about how they did these things in their own lives. That's so honest to recognize your own shortcomings and how, and to seek to really improve. Not a lot of people are that insightful or introspective, I find. And I guess that's another reason why I really like you and I've just met you. (laughs) Same, same, same. (laughs) You've, you have come from a childhood that was very unusual and can you tell us a little bit more about that? I've started listening to your book on audio and just your powerful description of what it felt like when your mother left you. Mm-hmm. Just It just broke my heart. And I find that children are great observers, but poor interpreters. And mm-hmm. how could you as a young child make sense of what the heck was happening to you and your sister? That is such a smart thing that you just said. Um, did you say great interpreters, poor observers? No, I think- great observers, poor <laughs> interpreters. The kids like see everything, but they don't know what it means. You're so right. They don't have the life experience to make sense of what the adults are doing around them. You're so right. And um, I think in in the absence of it, of information, because also I came of age in the 80s, I was born in the 70s. And, you know, it was a different generation. It was certainly not a time when you would explain everything to your kid or check in about your feelings. And in my family, my father who ended up raising us, he wouldn't really talk to us about being afraid or overwhelmed. It just wasn't something you did. And I think even today, there's probably a lot of fathers who might not be comfortable saying that. And mothers too. I mean, I didn't even know until my kids were in preschool that you and the teacher modeled it for me that you could say, you know, that really hurt my feelings. Or when you do that, mommy gets frustrated. I just didn't even know you could do that. I think I had thought I had to be Teflon. Um, and that was another thing I learned as a kid, which is I had to survive and be tough. And one thing I should mention is, you know, there's a lot of ways I can answer your question, which is really a great question. But I was born on a kibbutz in Israel and we we were, quote, sabras, which is what my father always described me as, which is a prickly pear, which is tough and kind of thorny on the outside and soft and sweet on the inside. And so I grew up with this myth, you know, about being really tough. And I was tough. I was a first child. I was 
uh, very self-reliant. That was really encouraged in my culture growing up and in my family. Tough, tough, tough. And so I thought that was what I needed to be. And I wanted to be that way. And so when my mom dropped us off in the opening scene of my book, the prologue, my mom drops drops me and my younger sister off at the Newark airport to see our father who had left the year before. And I think I knew she was going away. She had told us she was going to India, but I didn't understand that she was going to see the guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. I didn't know how long she was gonna be gone. And I was with a parent I hadn't seen in a year who I once had a very close bond with. And so it was an, a completely disorienting experience, experience for me, but seminal. And it was one of those anchoring memories that has always stayed with me. I've always had it in my head. So writing about it was kind of like unfurling the story for myself. and. As I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I could see it cinematically and also in a novelistic way because this was sort of where the story really picks up and happens in my life, the the pivotal thing that happened to me that changed everything. And so, yes, I observed a ton of stuff growing up, and I don't know if that happened because I was very aware of change and trauma around me and my antenna were up or if it was just inherent in me my father's a writer, maybe I was always going to be observant. But so many new things happened for me so quickly growing up, that I was just out there with my sensors. And those experiences locked in early. And I was really able to write about them later. Wow, well, your book is simply beautiful. And I can't wait to finish it. So if I ask you a question that is letting eliciting too much information that can be found Mm, in the book, mm -hmm. feel free to decline Mm, to answer. mm -hmm. But I wonder, did anyone from the cult or or the guru himself ever contact you? uh, That's a great question. Or after the book came out? Mm, That's a great question. So the book, I was starting to promote the book. It came out in May of 2021. And I was starting to promote the book when I got an email from the organization, the foundation that the guru has. Well, okay, so let me just say that Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened. He had this ranch in in Oregon, um, which readers can read about that was in the news. And there was poisoning and bioterror and all kinds of things. He ended up leaving the ranch and he got kind of smoked out by the FBI, long story. But, he went back to India and changed his name to Osho, which is a Japanese name. So the Osho Foundation, the Osho I've heard Org- of that. Yep, yeah. Osho, O S H O. He they contacted me and asked for how they could get a hold of a signed copy of my memoir, which I thought was really interesting because I don't know that they would especially appreciate the backstory that I offer, you know, the way that I unpack what happened, because I I don't, I did not drink the Kool-Aid of Bhagwan. I am, you know, oppositional to high control groups, MLMs, spiritual leaders because of my upbringing. So that happened. And also in my memoir, I changed all the names, even the name of a problematic player who arrived late in the book that my mom ended up getting sucked back into the cult with. I I didn't want any kind of retribution. I, I wanted to, I really wanted to tell my story without pointing fingers in a big way, just offering information to the reader. Mm -hmm. And I will say that one, one commenter on my Instagram said, 
well, it's all good for you to criticize Bhagwan, but you're getting rich off of a book about him. And, I, and the, they also said, Osho changed my life. I never met him, but his teachings have changed my life. And so, I, you know, first of all, authors rarely get rich. Just yeah, wanna, that's for sure. <laughs> I just want to clear that up. Second of all, um, you know, uh, that was my experience. Like, you know, and the truth is in my book, I do question whether if it hadn't been Bhagwan slash Osho, would my mom have left for another reason, right? Maybe it was an excuse. And so that's the answer to that question. And I do want to go back. I forgot to add this to the interpretation question. In the absence of information as a kid, in only observing everything, I decided that my mom left because of me, my mm. father left because of me. Any silence among adults, anytime answers weren't given, I just filled in the blanks myself. And I completely agree with you that kids do that. And that's why it is so important to not narrate every part of your life for children, but to offer some insight into what you're thinking. Because if your kid is vigilant, which many kids who undergo trauma and upset are, mm -hmm. they're going to decide it has to do with them. And I had to spend decades, decades and decades figuring out why those things were not because of me. Oh my gosh, heartbreaking stuff. Wow. Oh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I am amazed that you were able to be as put together as you are and to forgive to forgive and move on. And I know that anger uh, is corrosive and eats away at the person who is angry rather than the object of one's anger. But wow, how do you get, how do you get to a place where you can forgive a mother for leaving? Well, it's interesting, and I and forgiveness comes up a lot in in interviews that I've done for the book, and I've thought about it a bunch too. I wrote an article, and and when you you know when people look at my website, they can find this article, but it was basically about you know the anger I had about my mom and how I got over it a little bit, and I I hesitate to use. It's kind of a combo of acceptance, understanding compassion and forgiveness. I, I don't know about the forgiveness piece. And I've thought about it a lot um, because I think that means that you are like carte blanche saying everything is fine. And I don't know that I would, I'm not sure where I am on the word, but I will say part of my healing and understanding became available to me because one, I got to talk with my mother and she stayed for the conversation. And that's in the epilogue of my book. And that is like a, a part of the book that wasn't gonna be there when I first wrote it. And then miraculously, we had this conversation, which then informed other parts of the book that I went back and edited. So I think that's an interesting thing about like a story in motion. Mm -hmm. um, also, I got the sense that my mom really didn't have the resources if you and that she wouldn't do again what she did and if you can believe that about the person then maybe that helps you heal and then the other part was that i came to understand it really didn't have to do with who i was mm -hmm. um if you know that it didn't have to do with who you were but more about the person who did the thing then that changes some of the personalization of it um it doesn't make it better it doesn't change my childhood but it does give me a different understanding. And part of what you're referencing is that my mom comes over for Shabbat dinner at my house and cooks it still to this day, yeah, yeah. now that I've had children, you know, for years we lived in separate places. We were never together. And now in my forties 
and my late 30s, my mom is in the same town as me and cooks dinner and is a grandmother. So it's a complete strange thing. And I had to deal with my anger about her being present for my my kids yeah. when she wasn't for me. So believe me, I've been through a lot of different feelings about it. Yeah. And I've come to this place. We also have that in common. My mom left. Um, oh. She was still in my life, but my father got custody of us and um, lived in Kensington, Maryland, where I went to school. And my mother moved to Virginia, but I could see her on the weekends. So it's not really quite the same, but I did have this feeling of abandonment as a mm-hmm. child. And I can relate to what you just said about her as a grandmother, because my mother as a grandmother is a much better person mm-hmm. than when she was my mom. She was unavailable to me. It's so hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard. I mean, I had moments where I was actually jealous of my daughter. I, I, yeah, it's complicated. I sometimes feel jealous about the bond between my kids and my mother and how close they are to her and how it's just this unconditional love and joy. And there's no <laughs> trouble at all because mm-hmm. they, she doesn't have to deal with the troublesome well, But that's totally true as well. You're, she's like the gift relative. Yes. But also I realized like, it's not lost on me that my mom is able to stay put now and hasn't moved around the way she used to now that I'm an adult and I don't need her the same way. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, it, there's something at play there too. I mean, if I needed her all again, I don't know, but our relationship is far more intimate now than it used to be because we have been able to talk about certain things and she hasn't run away from those conversations, which also helped me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I am a recovering alcoholic who has nine years of sobriety, but I will live my amends to my children by not going off the rails, by being a stable presence in their lives that was not the case for certain parts of their childhood. And I know that, and they don't want to hear me say, I'm sorry. Talk Mm. is cheap. Mm -hmm. They want, they just want me to be okay. Mm -hmm. Woo, heavy, right? Heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah. So your podcast called And Then Everything Changed. Mm -hmm. Give me an example of someone you've interviewed that uh, really made an impact on you by discussing a painful, pivotal moment in their life. Oh my gosh. Uh, Let's see. With over a hundred episodes, it's so hard to pick. Um, I guess I I would say that one of my very favorite episodes... um, it's my first episode. I'm always going to go back to Paul because he helped me create the podcast. So he was raised in a very evangelical, uh, they were missionaries. He's older than me and he, he's this tall, tall man. We, we ended up interviewing in person in Seattle when I launched two years ago, deep, beautiful voice. Everyone should listen to episode one. And his father was a missionary and they lived in Japan and unbeknownst to a lot of people, although if you're in the missionary world and the evangelical world, you might know this punishment was harsh. His mom followed a very, very, they followed a very gender specific role in the family. He was raised in the sixties and there was abuse in his family. There was such terrible emotional and physical abuse. And when he was 16, after his father had knocked him around quite a bit, he just stood up to his father and he fought back. And, you know, it was a very painful conversation we had. He now is a 
a celebrant, a funeral celebrant. So he helps people with the end of life. And while he doesn't believe he doesn't follow an evangelical life himself, he believes in spirit and he believes in sort of redemption. And so talking with him was this way of understanding the religion he grew up in and the strict, strict life he grew up in. And then how many how much fallout there was for his siblings. Some of them never recovered from this. There was alcoholism, there was pain. And when his episode launched, Maria, I, I've never seen anything like it. Within the first couple of hours, there were hundreds of downloads because his network of church friends and people who had been raised in the missionary style just spread like wildfire. And and a lot of them were in Japan as well because they had been raised there too as missionaries. And so to this to date, it's one of the most listened to episodes. And Paul is this strong, resourceful man and writer who went through this. And when I talked to him, I felt like I almost could see the young boy and what he had gone through. And so I really, I mean, I love all the episodes and on my website, they're labeled via subject matter. So people, you know, body image, alcoholism, cults, there's all kinds of stories. Interesting. Raising children who are differently abled, wow. you know, things like that. Interesting. Wow. I have a lot of listening to do. Um, and you are the older sister to yeah. a younger sibling. How does she feel about your book and being public about what happened? I think she celebrates that I wrote it. She is the one who encouraged me to write when I was an actor. She said, I really think you should write because of her. I actually took a writing class, you know, that's it's because of her. Um, she remembers things differently than I do. Uh, but she had read the man. She read the manuscript before I published it. So did my mom and dad. And I made sure I had their blessing or at least they understood where I was. And so I, I don't think I try not to drag her into my publicity and my I try not to post personal pictures of my family yes. uh, just me as a kid and stuff because it's my journey and my story yeah. and um yeah I think she's she's proud of me she you know was really excited for me but I try to compartmentalize you know How about their your lives. children have they read the book they haven't read it yet but my daughter said will you please sign a copy and give it to me and I I think that you know, for them, I'm just mom who does my podcasting and my interviewing thing. They make fun of me. They <laughs> they make fun of me all the time. They're teenagers. They love me. And my they both gave me birthday cards this year with a little a sketch of me holding my book. So they understand Aww. and they celebrate me for sure. But they also think I'm a derpy middle-aged woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can relate to that. As and, well. <laughs> and I won't make them read my book. I mean, it's weird to get into the interior thoughts of your parent. You yes. know, a lot of kids don't want to do that. But I just just know one day maybe she will he will that's fine yeah i agree my kids have skimmed parts of it but they're not really interested although each of them came to a book event of mine and i'm grateful for that yes yes and my kids came oh. to my graduation from pacific university when i got my masters and oh. they were a lot younger than that was in 2017 and that was really sweet and and you know what if i have another book launch another reading because my short story collection will not be about my life that way so i would be i would love for them to come to that yeah 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 it's different parenting um young adults gosh i've really had to it's i've struggled with the transition 
Mm. Um, going from being someone who knew everything to someone who knows nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, my daughter, who's 16 and a half, has been telling me, putting me in my place for a long time. And I think there's a part of me that really admires her strength. And I'm not saying that she's without, you know, fear and all that, but she's a lot sassier than I ever was because I was always trying to please people and keep them yes. from walking away from me. And my daughter just doesn't have that. She's like very strong in who she is. She has a vision and she she's probably a little too sassy in some ways, but you know what? I think I admire it. Yeah. And I think that's a gift you've given her that she feels comfortable being that way because you have provided such a stable base for her. I, I appreciate that. Thank I you. often think that my kids take things out on me because I'm their safe person. Mm, yeah, it's a gift in a way, right? It's sort of like a credit, like, okay, they obviously feel really secure at home yes. that they can do this, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so the my favorite question to ask my guests, and I've never received the same answer, is what do you do to become your best version? I have struggled with this. And I think that I, for me, it's a balance of pushing myself and also resting when I need to rest. And I think I drive hard and I have a husband who's so sweet and will tell me, you know, you really should sleep in today or you got to give yourself a break. It's very sweet because he helps me with my self-care. Mm -hmm. And it's really a gift that I've been able to slow down and take care of myself and not push myself the way I did is like the robot kid and adult I was for so long. And so I think to be the best self, I give myself time to understand that I don't have all the answers. Eventually they will come to me, that it is a process and that nothing is ever perfect. And I just need to accept that I'm doing the best I can. That's beautiful, beautiful. And words of wisdom for all of us. So I thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to be with us. Visit reneetplank.com, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K.com. She offers coaching, you budding writers out there, for memoir coaching, developmental and line edit, developmental edit. She's a terrific editor and just an all-around interesting, vibrant person. And I hope that you will join us next week for another installment of these amazing, inspiring women. Thank you, Renit. Oh, Maria, thank you so much for having me. And it was just so fun to meet you and talk with you. Thanks.